Hey there, friends, and welcome to episode 209 of Just the Zoo of Us. This week, I'm joined by a science communicator and educator for a review of the iconic little birds zooming around the cactuses and tumbleweeds, Roadrunners. We discuss things like the glamorous highlights of working for a science museum, what Looney Tunes got right and wrong about Mr. Runner, and how these fascinating animals are able to thrive in the extreme climates of the American Southwest. Just the Zoo of Us presents Roadrunners with Alana Baliga. Ellen Weatherford with your favorite animal review podcast, Just the Zoo of Us. This week, I'm very excited to be speaking with a brand new friend about a very punk rock, as I understand it to be, animal. This is Alana Baliga. Say hi, Alana. Hello. And Alana, what are your pronouns real quick? She, her. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Folks listening may recognize your last name from a guest that we've had on on the podcast before, Vikram Baliga. Yes, I am married to the plant prof himself. Yeah, so <laughs> it's exciting that he, um, I love that y'all have collaborated on podcasts before. Yeah, he loves all things plants and I love all things wildlife. So when we go to zoos, I'm normally looking at the animals and he has his back turned looking at the plants. That's such a perfect dynamic for going to like zoos because then neither of you are annoyed that the other one wants to spend like 30 minutes in one spot. Exactly. It works out really great. Yeah. <laughs> but also like it's important to have both sides of like the ecosystem emphasized, right? Like you need to have passion for Absolutely. both. I'm sure you can tell him a lot that's cool about the animals and he can tell you a lot that's cool about the plants. Exactly. Whether we want to hear it from each other or not. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> But, you know, with science types, you know, it's exactly. always like you dangle like a, just the tiniest little whiff of a fun fact in front of them. Oh, go nuts 100%. for it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Alana, you are a science communicator and someone who has worked in educating people about science. For our friends who are listening at home, I would love it if we could get to know you a little bit. How did you get into this work teaching people cool stuff about science? Absolutely. So I was born and raised in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, that's where we still live. And I grew up as a kid, always looking for frogs and lizards. And we, we had, uh, you know, various pets as I was growing up. But what really worked for me or what I fell in love with as a kid was going to our local science center or science museum. The science center here in Lubbock has a live animal collection that they use for education. And that was the first place I ever saw somebody holding a snake or holding a lizard and let me touch it, ask questions. And I totally fell in love with that, which is really weird because my, my mom and dad are not fans of such things. Um, <laughs> You broke the cycle. I did. And my, my mom, she loves me so much. She let me have a pet snake back in high school. Um, oh, that's true parental support. <laughs> man, she she hated it. But she, yeah, she loves me enough that she was okay with it. And then she even sends me pictures of snakes sometimes randomly. And I'm like so proud of her that she was even close enough to take a photo. She's thinking of you. Yeah. Oh. So I, I fell in love with wildlife um, definitely as a kid. I mean, as most people do, Steve Irwin was who I looked up to and Zabumafu and the Crap Brothers. like <laughs> The Golden Age. Absolutely. 
Um, I actually got to meet one of the Crap Brothers several years ago. It was the coolest thing. No. It was at a, a oh National gosh. Museum convention, and they actually have, um, they put together a Wild Kratz museum exhibit. That's a traveling exhibit, and he was there promoting it. So I actually got to meet him, and I'm totally fangirling in a photo with him. <laughs> I like have my hands over my mouth, and I'm just like, ah! I'm all like hunched over and covering my mouth. Um, anyway, so it was really cool. But yeah, growing up, I, I fell in love with animals. I did run away from Lubbock, went to Texas a and in College Station, studied wildlife, mostly focusing on conservation and management of wildlife, and then moved back to Lubbock, took a little time off um, to spend some family time, and then I actually applied and got a job working at my local science center, and I've worked there for over the past decade. I worked my way up from a part-time demonstrator to a manager overseeing our education department, but I recently stepped away from that full-time management role to spend more time with my husband and my son, and uh, still working with them part-time. Absolutely love it. I got to work with the live animals and do demonstrations, taking them to libraries, community centers, schools, whoever invited us out. But I also got to do a whole lot of other things. Um, so wildlife was my jam. And the first time they told me, hey, you're going to pack up this ginormous portable planetarium and teach <gasps> children about stars and planets. I was horrified. I was like, I know nothing about stars and planets. Right. Those are different skill sets. <laughs> but what I've I've fallen in love with is constantly learning. I know a little about a lot. So I, I don't consider myself to be an expert on any specific science topic or even an animal by any means. I'm very passionate and love to learn more about all of these things. But by no means am I an expert on everything. But my love with my job was anytime I saw a light bulb moment happen. When I made that connection with the kid of you are a scientist, you don't think you're a scientist, but you are. And better yet, were light bulb moments with parents. When I can teach a parent something they never knew before was always really exciting. And it's cool to work in a place where you can see that learning happen with children and adults. That's definitely my passion. Any type of informal STEM education. So again, anything from wildlife to space, combustion. So I got to do fire demonstrations and super cold and blow up trash cans with liquid nitrogen and ball pit explosion, ball pit balls flying everywhere, building rockets, engineering challenges, like lots of even dissections and teaching about wildlife. So yeah, little about a lot <laughs> is my background. Before I hit record, you were telling me about an experiment that you were doing at your museum that wasn't the most glamorous, mm -hmm. but it was a very funny story. Would yes. you like to relate that? Absolutely. One of our favorite topics that we get to teach about is grossology. So anything your body does that is gross, it's fun to actually learn about. You know, it's kind of a weird subject to talk about. Um, it kind of seems silly and gross and embarrassing. And um, kids and parents are like, "Ooh, why is she talking about this? But by the <laughs> end, they're actually like, oh, okay. I, I learned something. Well, because we know we're going to have to hear it about 400 more times exactly, in the car. <laughs> exactly. And and that's one of my favorite things, too, is that the kids go home and tell the parents what they learned. <laughs> um, but yeah, this, this particular demonstration, we call it, uh, do you have the guts? And we talk about digestion, starting in our mouth 
ending at the toilet. I actually, in more recent years, after having a son, I've done this program numerous times before having a son, but once we conquered potty training, I took our training potty up to work as well, and that's how we ended the demonstration, was with this little training potty toilet that you push the button and it flushes. <laughs> anyway, we go through this whole thing with digestion, mush up food, and uh, pass that through a series of Ziploc bags and pantyhose, add a, a stomach acid <laughs> substitute and a digestive enzyme substitutes, and eventually you get to making solid waste, right? And you poop that out in the toilet. And yeah, my first... You simulate uh, pooping it out in a toilet. Yes, through <laughs> through through pantyhose. You simulate it pooping out into the toilet. Um, but yeah, we were working with some second graders. I was still training. I was a part-time demonstrator, and this was the first time I'd ever seen the demo. My boss is doing the program, going great. And at the end, he opens up to question and answer, which is always super fun with second graders asking questions about what they just saw. I... Anytime you open the floor for questions to a group of children, I have to hold my breath. I'm like, what is going to come out of this child's mouth? <laughs> uh, I've, I've learned over time, second grade and up, you can snortingly ask questions. Below that, don't even ask questions. Nope. Ask the adults. <laughs> Do, don't uh, invite the potential for that chaos. <laughs> one time my mom did this. No. <laughs> No. Anyway, this uh, he's finishing up this de- this demonstration, asking questions, and one kid goes, "You didn't, you didn't, you didn't say anus once," and it just was so hysterical. My boss like kept massive composure. I'm in the back row, just slumped over laughing. Like, still after working there over a decade, favorite quote hands down that that I've heard. And it, to me, sounds disappointed. I know. He was so upset. (laughs) It sounds like he's leaving a (gasps) one-star Yelp review. Like, they did not say anus once. I was really looking forward to it. I really wanted that. And he did. And we did did not not deliver. deliver. (laughs) He did not. (laughs) Didn't deliver. Poor kid. (laughs) You know, that's such a fun way to, like, get kids involved and get kids interested in, right? Because, like, once you kind of let down those barriers of, like, what's appropriate or what's taboo to talk about, then it just kind of opens the world to, like, well, what are all the things I can learn about? Exactly. So making it fun, making it silly, but also learning along the way. 100% important. Let's learn along the way today. Yeah. I'm really excited about the animal that we're talking about today. It is something that has come up in a lot of the research I've done for other animals on this show. For people who are listening who maybe don't live in the American Southwest and aren't very familiar with this animal, what's a, what is a roadrunner? Oh, so, okay, so a roadrunner, we're going to specifically talk about the greater roadrunner. There is a close relative called the lesser roadrunner that lives primarily in Mexico. Get dunked on, lesser roadrunner. Exactly, exactly. And they look almost identical, except the lesser is slightly smaller. They didn't need to do them like that. Yeah, I know. So the roadrunner is kind of a a crow-sized bird. So it's about two feet from tip of the beak to the tip of the tail. It is mostly brown feathers with like these striking white spatters throughout its, its feathers. It's got racing stripes. Yeah, exactly. It has a really long tail. Um, It has this little tuft on top of its head that you sometimes see. They kind of move it around when they're communicating. As their name implies, they are running on roads. They are a ground-dwelling bird. Now, I believe they are actually the fastest running 
flying bird. So they have the fastest land speed for a uh-huh. bird able to fly. Okay, so they have both bases, right? Because like, yes. if you're going to talk about like a fast running bird, it's like ostriches right there. Right. But they but can't, fly. can't fly. Exactly. Mm. Um, now, roadrunners aren't good at flying. They're, oh. they're, they're not good at flying at all, but they still are capable for short distances. So that's kind of the general overview. They are in the family Cuculidae. So they are in the cuckoo family. So some of their relatives are called annies as well as cuckoos. Are they also jerks? <laughs> like <laughs> It feels like this whole group of birds is just... Right? Or even just cuckoo. They're a little crazy, but they're, they're not. They're, they're <laughs> beautiful birds. I think they're absolutely stunning birds with the really dark browns and then the bright whites. They even have some kind of metallic-y colors almost <gasps> in their, their wings and their tail feathers, kind of almost like a, a greenish blue. Big fan of iridescence. I know. Sucker for it. Yeah. And then they also have something called a post orbital patch. Um, we'll talk more about that later as we get into stuff, but it's just kind of this featherless area next to their eye that has bright red and bright blue colors huh. um, to it. You don't always see them, but cause sometimes they have the feathers covering it, but then they part them to do different things. It's like a little spot of like eyeshadow, like you exactly. got a little, a little cat eye going. Exactly. It's beautiful. Now, not only am I not from the American Southwest, but I've never really spent very much time in the American Southwest, so I'm not super familiar. Do you just see these around? (laughs) Are they just like chilling out like all over the place? That is a great question. So here in Lubbock, Texas, I am in their range, but I don't see them too often. I've only seen them in the wild a handful of times. Um, My in-laws actually live kind of just outside the city, and so Vikram actually saw them uh, more growing up, and I've seen them, I think, a couple times when we're out there visiting. My probably earliest memory of actually seeing one, I want to say I was probably around nine or ten years old. My dad ran a camp during the summer in a a canyon, and so I'm like walking up this road up to the cabin I'm staying in, and one just runs out in the road in front of me and then stops, and we like stare at each other. And like, that was the coolest moment for me. <laughs> like, it didn't last nearly long enough, but like, that was the first time I had seen one in the wild. Wow. Um, and it just it blew my mind. So, yeah, they're in areas where the uh, canyons, desert areas, um, scrubby areas, even some tall grasslands, definitely dry and hot is, is where you'll normally find them. The climate that you're describing is kind of a hostile place to live. It's a little difficult to survive there. This is playing on hard mode. You have to really adapt in a lot of unique ways to to get by in these places. So if this is your first time ever listening to this podcast, what we do is review animals by rating them in different categories out of 10. And the first category we rate animals on is effectiveness. This is how well they're physically adapted, things built into their body that let them do a good job of surviving and thriving, right? Ways that they might catch their food, ways that they might not become food themselves. What do you give Roadrunners out of 10 for effectiveness? So I'm actually going to give them a nine out okay. of 10 All right. for, for effectiveness. So I'll explain why I took off the one point when we get to there. But so one thing that has definitely helped them out is they're omnivores. They eat a whole bunch of different things. Now they primarily will eat large insects, 
But then also a bunch of crazy stuff. Like they're eating scorpions and tarantulas and yeah. centipedes. I was going to say, this is how they keep coming up in my notes. Oh, yeah, because they're a predator to a lot. <laughs> it's like every time I'm looking up some really cool animal that lives in the Southwest, mm-hmm. it'll be like, and this animal has these incredible defenses that make it like invulnerable to everything except roadrunners. Road like, it's always like the only thing that eats these is roadrunners. Like the yeah. only thing that can somehow conquer this like otherwise indomitable animal and roadrunners are like, it's always, I'm like, what kind of apex no predator? <laughs> like, no <big> deal. <laughs> they've got everything on lock. It's incredible. Yeah. Also on top of that, they're really good at catching lizards. So they'll even eat like horned lizards. So all of those spikes and stuff like that, they catch it, they smash it and then they swallow <laughs> it whole. What they're also known for definitely mice. They do a ton of rodent control, but then the craziest thing, and they're also one of my favorite animals, are snakes. They are phenomenal hunters of snakes, and they they will even um, occasionally hunt rattlesnakes. Now, the reason why they're so effective at this is they treat every snake as if it's a venomous snake. So they approach each one with caution. They spread their wings and their tail feathers out to make themselves look bigger. They're not immune to rattlesnake venom, so if they were to get struck, they would probably die. But those feathers can be bit and nothing's going to happen to them. They're, you know, the feathers get bit, they're not going to die. So they make themselves look really big, kind of like almost like a matador. Um, (laughs) They actually want the snake to strike at them because as they strike is when they can actually grab them from behind the head. Um, Yeah. That's cool. Super crazy. So as they strike, they can try and kind of position. Occasionally they'll hunt in pairs they're mated pair occasionally they'll hunt so one will distract while one will try and grab Um, but they'll do it by themselves as well and then yeah once they grab it they smash it on a rock until it's dead it makes me think of that scene in um, the Avengers where Hulk picks up Loki (laughs) and is like just smashing him back and forth and called him a puny god like that is what that is what the roadrunner is doing with its food so it's killing it but it's also tenderizing it making it easier for digestion. And these are like incredibly powerful, like rattlesnakes and really, really like defensive and and powerful animals. And they're just bonking them against a rock. Yeah. Like it's nothing. Yeah, I saw a a researcher was talking about they actually got one of the snakes afterwards and x-rayed it, broke their spine in like 16 different places or something like that. You're not walking away from that one. You're not slithering away from that one. Sorry. Absolutely not. Because that's all they are is spine. (laughs) They ain't got much else to them. (laughs) And then after they do that, they swallow it whole. Now, these are pretty good sized birds, about two feet long, right? We talked about that. But sometimes these snakes could be like four feet long, Mm. right? So, and I've seen pictures of this, but I didn't realize what it actually was. But they'll partially swallow the snake, like head first. And then the tail will hang out of its mouth for a while. It's fine. It's a treat for later. So, well, yeah. (laughs) So their stomach is breaking down the part that's made it to the stomach. It will wait a little while, swallow a couple more inches down, digest it. So this could take hours for them to actually... So they'll grab their snake, start swallowing it, and then just hide out in the bushes until it's, it's fully digested. It's like a a snack that you get for the road, right? It's like, I'll work on this. (laughs) It's 
first of all, disgusting. Second of all... Uh, oh, it's fascinating. <laughs> yes. When I say disgusting, like, assume <laughs> disgusting in a cool way. But it, it would also imply to me that that must not block their windpipe, right? Because, like, we couldn't do that because we breathe mm-hmm. and eat with the same hole. So yeah. I guess, I'm guessing they don't have to breathe and eat through the same hole. Well... You're eating with your mouth, you can still breathe through your nose, right? So Yeah, like, but like if you're choking on something, it would be blocking like the windpipe. I don't know. I, that's true. I don't know. I didn't look into the breathing, but that's pretty, that's a good question. Is it a different tube? I don't know what they got going on in there. <laughs> I don't know. So cool though. But it's like being at a, like a restaurant or something and you're with a friend and then they just get like all the food all over your face and you're like, there's uh, something there. You got a little something there. Or just, see if just you- Just saving it for later. If you have a big beard- like my husband always. does. Yep. The little crumbs get in there. You got a midnight snack. <laughs> There's always something there. <laughs> something that a lot of people associate Roadrunners with, probably because Looney Tunes has put in some work in this yeah. department, is their speed, right? Yeah. And you touched on this a little bit, that mm-hmm. they're like the fastest flighted running bird, yeah. which is still going to take a minute for me to break yeah. down. But what what does that look like? Like what's going on there when they're zipping and zooming all over the Southwest? Well, first off, I want to ask how fast do you think they can run? Okay, hold on. Um, I think a cheetah gets up to what, 60, right? That sounds about right. See, 66, something like that. I don't think that they're that fast. So I'm going to bump it down because they're little guys. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say like 20 miles per hour. Nailed it. Perfect. Uh, You got to do one. (laughs) Yeah. So on average, somewhere around 18 to 20 miles per hour. um, Okay. Like, I definitely thought it was like way faster, right? Like they're roadrunners. They're known for being fast. And like you mentioned in the cartoon, right? That roadrunner is always able to run away from the coyote. How fast do you think the coyote runs? Oh, now see, here's the real question. Uh, They seem pretty fast. Based on just purely like propaganda from Looney Tunes, I'm going to assume they're slightly slower than the Roadrunner. I'm going to put them at 15. Nope. No? Absolutely not. Nope. They can go tw- almost twice as fast as the Roadrunner. Come so, on. Yeah. They're, <laughs> I think their like top speeds are around 40 miles per hour. Coyotes got done so dirty. This is ridiculous. This was a, a coyote smear campaign. By Looney Tunes. A, a little bit. So I am actually, I'm currently wearing my Roadrunner cartoon shirt. I did a little history into Wiley e. Coyote and Roadrunner. <gasps> so another fun thing, Roadrunner, the animal is one word. So Roadrunner all combined. The cartoon is first name, last name, Roadrunner. Oh, Mr. Runner. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Roadrunner um, versus Wiley e. Coyote. And so the first short film was called The Fast and Furious mm, <laughs> back okay. in 1949 and animator was Chuck Jones it turned out very popular so they kept going with the show but they stuck to very hard rules that the road runner would humiliate but never harm oh. Wiley e. Coyote well now so that's he sweet was, he was always okay in the end I will say Wiley e. Coyote does get grievously harmed during the course of the show but it's sort of as a like yeah. repercussion thing I guess the road runner yeah. himself is not inflicting the harm but wily coyote he gets harmed (laughs) yeah also i guess one reason why i thought roadrunners were so fast had to hype myself up so back when i was in elementary school i played softball and my team one year was called the looney tunes and i chose Uh, my name to be roadrunner now that's a good name though like i wasn't fast (laughs) 
<laughs> aspirational name. <laughs> I tried my best. <laughs> yeah. It was wishful thinking. I did okay. But anyway. <laughs> was there maybe somebody else on your team named the coyote that was like I a little don't faster? Remember. Uh, probably. Probably. That's it's been a minute since then. Another side note in talking about how they grab their food and whack it a few times before they swallow it whole. Back when I was studying wildlife, I needed an internship before I could graduate. And I did an internship at a local wildlife rehabilitation center. And super cool. I mean, we get lots of lots of squirrels, opossums, ducks, skunks, stuff like that. But this one year, we actually got one roadrunner admitted to the center. And I don't remember why it was admitted. Um, I think it was a juvenile. And so we like had an anvil dropped on it. (sighs) Probably it was a bad day. Um, No broken bones, though. It was okay. Um, But we had it inside in these little little cages as we do all the baby birds. And then eventually, as they get bigger and stronger and getting them ready to release, we moved the Roadrunner into an outdoor mew, which is just an outdoor stall for birds. And I remember actually feeding it one day, getting it ready to be released we put a live mouse into the <gasps> mew with it. Oh so my gosh. The, the mouse is, you know, darting around the mew, and then eventually the roadrunner just pounces on it, whacks it on a rock, swallows it whole with the little tail sticking out. Uh, if you're a mouse listening, sorry, turn so this sorry. one off. This is not a good episode for you to be listening to, but uh, yeah. that's very cool, though. I feel like I would have been so hyped by that. Oh, it was so cool. And to get it ready for release right they need to be able to know how to catch their food and so you had to keep it at the center long enough to make sure you're confident that it can catch live food baby's ready to hunt it was absolutely absolutely are there things that hunt roadrunners absolutely so they do have predators and shockingly enough it's not coyote very often like yes <laughs> coyote can catch them but they are really good at maneuvering on the ground and so a, a roadrunner is better capable of darting and dodging and, and weaving and hiding under stuff versus that coyote is not able to get into those small stuff so the biggest predators um, are definitely going to be things like hawks and falcons And then near residential areas, definitely cats are a big predator uh, near residential areas. Also, things like skunks and raccoons um, are also predators. Yeah. Well, I guess that makes sense because if they're relying on like squeezing into tight spaces, Mm -hmm. right? Something like a cat, that's like what they're made for. Yeah, exactly. At least they have some sort of counters in place that can keep them in check, right? They can't be these unrivaled little velociraptors prowling around the desert exactly yeah and that's that's another thing too we'll talk about a little bit later is how yeah how very relatable they are to the dinosaurs we see in movies oh for sure hey y'all we're gonna take a quick break to hear from a couple of our friends on the maximum fun network when we get back we are gonna rate ingenuity and aesthetics for roadrunners so stay with us the human mind can be tricky Your mental health can be complex. Your emotional life can be complicated. So it helps to talk about it. I'm John Moe. Join me each week on my show, Depression Mode with John Moe. It's in-depth conversations about mental health with writers, musicians, comedians, doctors, and experts. Folks like Noah Kahn, Sashir Zameda, and Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. We talk about depression, anxiety, trauma, imposter syndrome, and perfectionism. We have the kind of conversations that a lot of folks are hesitant to have themselves. Listen, and you won't feel as alone, and you'll have some laughs, too. Depression Mode from Maximum Fun at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, this is Daniel Barwella, Technology and Data Specialist. I'm here with... Kira Gowan, Ad Operations Specialist, and we are both worker owners here at Maximum Fun. October is National Co-op Month, so we're celebrating our brand new co-op and others with an event called... Co-optober! We've got special events all month long, starting with a live Q&A on YouTube, where MaxFun worker owners will answer your questions on Friday, October 6th, and much more to come. We also want to tell you about some incredible limited edition merch exclusively available to MaxFun members until the end of October. If you're already a member of MaxFun, you've shown that you care about our shows and what we do. If you also want to help launch us into this new cooperative era and show off your support, go ahead and get yourself a hat, pin, or shirt. We worked with some of our favorite artists to make them really special. For details on merch, all of our upcoming events, like Meetup Day and more, visit MaximumFun.org slash Co-Optober. That's C-O-O-P-T-O-B-E-R. Happy Co-Optober! So we've talked about things in their body that let them zip around and take down all these really incredible prey. But something that's also helping them is their wits, right? Their ingenuity. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the next category that we rate animals on, which is ingenuity. These are behavioral adaptations, things the animal is doing to give it an edge, let it solve problems that it faces. What do you give roadrunners out of 10 for ingenuity? 10. This seems like... (laughs) Seems like there's something happening. I won't let, okay. let him cook. All right. Cause... Okay. Well, so there are two things within ingenuity that I found. One is a minus one. <gasps> no. But another one is a plus two. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we're averaging out. We're averaging out. It would have been an 11 yeah. and it got brought yeah, back down. Yeah, it got, got brought down. Yeah. So I, I tried, to, I did dock points, but then something I thought was super cool, I had to give it extra points for. So evolutionarily... Birds have what's called a keel bone, which is this kind of a elongated sternum or, or breastbone that all of their flight muscles attach to. So if you actually look at a roadrunner skeleton, no keel bone. Oh. So they can fly. Um, and in talking about effectiveness, um, one thing that I did dock them points for was their short round wings. Mm. So their wings are very short compared to another bird the same weight as them. So really short rounded wings. So they can fly. They're better at falling with style as like Buzz <laughs> Lightyear is good at. Um, they can do a little bit of gliding and they can hop up into things, but not very good flying. So we see that because with their anatomy, no keel bone, they don't have that extra muscular support Mm. to fly over long distance. And so over time, they evolved to run more that was better for them because they're specializing a lot of times in things like lizards. And so it's honestly a lot harder for a flying bird to hunt and catch a lizard versus something that's down on the ground with the lizard. And it can also like dodge and weave. Uh, Definitely recommend looking up like YouTube videos of roadrunners trying to catch lizards because they are, they're so fast. Like they can just bob and weave and get into these small places and they can also hop up really fast. So they can also catch things flying above them. So other things that they may even eat would possibly even be bats um, (gasps) and even like hummingbirds or flying insects just right above them. Get so on. Hop up, grab <laughs> it, and, and, and eat it. So I thought that was really interesting that, like, they just don't even have the muscular support on that bone mm-hmm. to sustain those muscles. 
But it kind of makes sense that the deserts that they live in, I, I don't associate those with having a lot of high trees, right? Like places to yeah. perch, right? So like, yeah. if there's not really a lot, I mean, you have the large cactuses and stuff like that. But, you know, where are you going to, where are you flying to? Where are you yeah, going? exactly. <laughs> so yeah, they do have like, and they'll even nest um, in things like cactus and Joshua trees. Anything that's really good and spiky and pokey, it's a great place for them to build their nest because um, they can kind of flutter in there and, and make their nest and that helps protect them. Oh, that's interesting because they, they are kind of spindly, right? Oh, very. Very pointy. Very long legs, very slender body. So it yeah. makes sense that they would be taking advantage of like a cactus, right? Because they could 100%. maneuver between the spines while something else couldn't. Exactly. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So that's a good good way they can protect themselves. They also, similar to, oddly enough, similar to shorebirds or aquatic birds, they have glands around their eyes that excrete salt. Um, so as they're eating, I mean, they get the majority of all of their water from the food they eat. They're not needing to find little pools of water because they don't exist most of the places that they're living, right? Because <laughs> I hope you don't need exactly. one. Exactly. <laughs> they're not going to find them, but they can get it from a lot of the foods they eat. And one way to keep them from dehydrating is um, kind of replacing that kidney function that would normally do that for you. They're actually excreting the salt through their eyes um, or through this gland near their eyes. So it helps keep them from getting dehydrated faster. What a weird way of doing that. Yeah. I'll just shove it out through my eyes? Exactly. What? <laughs> that exactly. doesn't go there. <laughs> Does for the roadrunner. Because <laughs> I would think I wouldn't want salt that close to my eyeballs. That seems like it would hurt. That would introduce problems. <laughs> Works for them. I'm not I'm not They seem to have it figured out. They do. So my minus one, and I guess if we want to kind of talk a little bit about, it'll go into kind of their mating. So their mating is, is pretty interesting. They're um, monogamous, so they will mate for life. The average lifespan is about eight years for the roadrunner. And this is one of my favorite things that I found. Um, for a female to accept the male, he has to bring her presents. Um, Same. A lot like a cat has to be a murder present. Um, oh! <laughs> so, so, you uh, have to bring me the head of my enemies exactly. before we can talk. Okay, I appreciate so, that. That's good. So he'll present a, a lizard or a mouse uh, to the female, and if she likes it, he'll hop up into the air, land on her back, and they'll they'll mate. And then um, as soon as they're done, she reaches up and grabs the food item out of his mouth and eats it. And Aww. then they're they're a couple for life. Lady and the Tramp with Roadrunners is way yeah. more brutal. It's way more, a lot more murder in that one. Uh -huh. Could could be a, a lizard or a mouse. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so they, they bring these uh, nuptial gifts. Now, one thing, too, that I noticed um, in uh, listening to a, a talk by James Cornett, a researcher based in California, he studied so much about desert life. And one species was the greater Roadrunner. And they can mate multiple times per season and produce multiple clutches. But what he noticed over time is that the males will go and grab a, a food item and mate, but then he'll run off and keep uh, the food for himself. What? A dining so, dash. <laughs> and so then the female will get up and like start chasing him going, that's mine. That's mine. Rightfully um, mine. So a lot of times the male will just... So later on in the breeding season, he's just going to eat the snacks himself. <laughs> I wish there was like some sort of like Facebook group for all these roadrunners to get in and be like... 
don't mate with this male. He will take your snacks. Do yep. not. Like, I wish we could, like, I wish there was some sort of group chat that the Roadrunners could, yeah. like, warn each other. Like, red yeah. flag. So I honestly didn't dock points for that. I think that's that's okay. Anyway, it's mean, uh, but it's clever. <laughs> it's it's, it's pr- quite brilliant. But as they then, they nest, the female's going to lay about a clutch of four to eight eggs at a time. Males do help um, in incubation of the eggs as well. We'll get a little bit more to in that in my plus two rating. Okay. But they normally have four to eight eggs and they hatch over time. So they don't all hatch at once. So you'll have an egg that hatches and then like a day or two later, another will hatch and then another will hatch. And so inevitably you get a really big roadrunner baby all the way to a very small roadrunner baby. Okay, sound of music. All right, we got the Von Trapp roadrunners. <laughs> yes, however, takes a much darker turn as... So did the sound of music. <laughs> True. Yeah, very true. Scientists haven't seen this actually happen, but they go in one day and they're like, oh, there were six babies and now there's only four babies Uh because they think that maybe the parents keep nurturing the bigger baby. Now, we've seen this in other birds. Yeah. yeah, We've seen this in birds. Sometimes they do that, right? And like not to ascribe human morality, right, to animal behavior. They have different values and ethics than we do. But like sometimes they'll do that. They might see that like basically the later chicks are like a just in case, like in case something doesn't work out with the first couple ones. So then they'll be like, okay, we're going to sink our resources into like... Mm -hmm. The healthier one. The ones that are doing well. The bigger and healthier ones. So... Yeah, I know. I guess I am, I am putting my human perspective on that. It's a little it's a little rough. It um, is rough. But you'd think you could just raise all the babies and now you've got more babies. I don't know. Yeah. But, but if they don't have enough resources to feed everybody, yeah, then someone's, someone's got to go. Someone's got to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They occasionally but very rarely do nest parasitism where they'll lay their eggs in another bird's nest. So that's that's a, a pretty common trait with, I think it's cowbirds. Cuckoo behavior. Cuckoo birds, yes. The other cuckoos do this nest parasitism, whereas the roadrunners road primarily make their own nests and raise their young fully. Occasionally they may lay their eggs in another nest, but very rarely um, have they seen that. So then in coming back to my plus two, one thing that I think is totally fascinating. So these birds are living in very dry, very hot conditions, but a lot of people may not realize in the desert, it actually gets really cold at night sometimes. In some places, it can be really cold. So what the birds will do is actually go into something called torpor, which is a, a state of lowering their body temperature and their metabolic rate. And so they'll drop a significant amount, probably around six degrees or so, and they just slow everything down. So roadrunners do this every single night. Really? A lot of times it's maybe seen just as a winter behavior. And honestly, they haven't really been able to study roadrunners too much in the winter. They've tried different things and haven't quite figured out how to do it because they just don't know where they go. We know they don't migrate because they don't fly, but they're rarely seen during the winter months. So they kind of believe that maybe they just extend torpor to multiple days at a time versus just at night. So at nighttime when they have eggs um, or nestlings, the male will still incubate overnight and then the female will go into torpor. So the male will stay not awake necessarily, but he's keeping his body temperature elevated while incubating while the female is then lowering metabolism, cooling off. Huh. That's really interesting because like he must be in some degree, first of all, like able to control the torpor of his body, right? Mm Because like the temperature is such where he would need to go into torpor, Mm -hmm. right? He would like physically... 
his body would be reacting like, hey, we need to, you know, go into torpor and cool off. But he must be like, well, hold on, I got to incubate these eggs. So don't do that. I kind of would relate it to us humans, right? As when you have a baby, you don't get much sleep, right? So (laughs) your nighttime behavior changes to help take care of of the young, right? So I think just that's what's happening is his nighttime behavior changes. And then what's really fun then in the mornings to help boost their body temperature really fast, their skin is actually black. So the They'll turn their backs to the sun, fluff up all of their feathers so it looks like they've just been like blow dried and just like like, they turn into like this big puff ball. And so they're lifting those feathers up, exposing that black back so that heat energy from the sun could be absorbed, boost their body temperature up, start hunting insects. I wouldn't have thought that like needing to elevate your body temperature would also be necessary because you usually only associate like people that don't live there. Yeah. Really only associate the area with like these really, really hot, high temperatures. But yeah, it gets cold too. We think of reptiles of of basking in the sun, right? To Mm -hmm. elevate their body temperatures because they can't regulate their body temperature on their own. But it's interesting um, to see something that can regulate their body temperature, but uses that to fast forward the the process. It's really yeah. cool. Yeah. Oh, that is interesting. But also like they know that if they do that, they're not going to have the body temperature to warm their eggs. Right. Oh, a snake skin. Yeah, I just I just picked that up on my foot. Oh. <laughs> Wait, check the snake cage real quick. (laughs) My pet snake is still good. He's yeah, this his shedding is everywhere. But side note too, with this and roadrunners, roadrunners as they build the nest, the males will gather materials and then the female will build it. But they're using sticks, grasses, uh, manure, and then also a lot of times snakeskin is another nesting material that they'll use. I really like when people use snakeskin like decoratively like you'll see people like frame like a snakeskin or something i've seen like people using snakeskin as like a i don't know a decorative sort of texture i'm very into that i think that's very cool so like i would also use that for my nest as Mm -hmm. well Mm -hmm. so good on them and good on the male roadrunner for being out and like seeing a snakeskin and being like that would look so cool for my wife to use in her nest i'm gonna bring it home to my roadrunner wife 100 percent. she loves it he knows he's he's seen her pinterest board he knows her aesthetic he's bringing home the snakeskin absolutely good husband and on the topic of things that look cool, the last category that we rate animals on is aesthetics, is just how nice this animal is to look at. I don't have a good read on which way you're going to go with this animal, although maybe I do. But what do you give road runners out of 10 for aesthetics? I'm giving it a 10. I'm sorry. It's It's got to get a 10. I just, I think he's a stunning bird. I really, really do. Maybe you could take a point off for when they're, well, no. I was going to say when they're, <laughs> when they're running, but that's the whole point. They, they. Look how they look when they run. So yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna stick to a 10. I think their colors are really beautiful. Again, that contrasting of a dark brown against the kind of like white, bright speckle splatter coloration on their backs and their wings. And then their tails are kind of a, a solid color, but again, with a little bit of that iridescent sheen. That crest on their head is super adorable. You mentioned them being kind of punk-like at the beginning, I believe. Oh, yeah. They look like a punk rocker, absolutely. They they frill that up. It has this really cool mohawk effect going on. And again, they'll use that either to ward off predators or make themselves look bigger or attract a female, and also just in their communication. I have been scrolling through pictures on Wikipedia of roadrunners just to get a really good visual sense of what we're looking at. I have great news. The Greater Roadrunner Wikipedia page has a picture of them sunbathing. 
Uh, Isn't it funny? It's so cute. Big fan of that. It's so cute. It's, they're just like a big puffball. And also has a picture of one sort of mid-step. And it looks like like a pointer dog that is like has the one paw raised and the nose yeah. outstretched. It's great. I actually think that if you get a picture of one like in motion when they are running, it's pretty stunning. It it's is. It's pretty great. They're very animated. Like there's they are. so much like action there. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier to that post orbital patch. Um, so that's right by the eyes. And it's really blue, which you mentioned kind of like your eyeliner it definitely looked like me in middle <laughs> school with a bright, dark blue eyeshadow. Before the days of YouTube makeup tutorials. <sighs> Man, where were those? <laughs> That would have helped. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, you just had to try it out on your own. So really bright blue and then also really bright red. So I mentioned earlier, you don't normally see those because their feathers are kind of covering them, but it is a bare patch of skin. And uh, as they are either showing aggression or again, attracting a mate is when you'll see them. Um, so they'll kind of flare out those feathers, part them, good side part that they're rocking. <laughs> I'll never let mine go. I'm sorry, you could pry it from my cold, dead hands. I don't care that it's not in style anymore. <laughs> I got it. I rock the side part, too. But yeah, really cool side part, and they show off of that. So a lot of times it means, hey, I'm grumpy, back off leave me alone, kind of just showing off those bright colors to ward things away. One of my favorite features of them are their feet, which I, I know is kind of weird to talk about, but their feet, they're zygodactyl, which means they have two pointing forward, two pointing backward. So as they're moving, their tracks just make little X prints. So little X's all over the place. And roadrunners were definitely seen um, significant in a lot of tribes throughout America and down into Mexico as well. Some tribes saw them as warding off evil spirits and those the feet prints as they were moving, you can't tell which direction the roadrunner is going. And oh. so to kind of confuse evil spirits, um, things like that. And then also it's definitely symbols of speed and strength and, and stuff like that as well. But I love the, I love the little X-shaped feet um, and went to White Sands a while back in New Mexico. And it was fun actually like looking out um, in the sand for tracks and we were able to identify a few different things. And so I think we saw Roadrunner tracks while we were out there and they're just little, little X's everywhere. So very distinctive footprint it's one of my favorite characteristics yeah for sure and something that we briefly mentioned earlier is that you can see a lot of those ancient dinosaur like raptor yes that's my next thing yeah they just look like a little dinosaur running i they mean that's do. what they are but like that's <laughs> exactly and they their body is almost perfectly parallel to the ground when they're running at high speeds so their their beak is outstretched and their tail feathers are straight back so they're like almost perfectly parallel as they're running and so yeah anything where you've seen like raptors depicted in hollywood movies they run very very similar um <laughs> and and yeah just watching these little little bitty dinosaurs everywhere so cute it makes sense that you'd want to have a stance like that though if you're running at high speeds because mm -hmm. then you want to stay back balanced right so like you need to not fall forward or backwards very aerodynamic but then also as they're turning i forgot to mention this as they're turning they're using their tail feathers and their short little stubby wings as like rudders and steering mechanisms so just like a rudder on a boat they're able to maneuver those tail feathers i mean we see that in flying birds um, as well hawks and things like that they're using that as as a rudder and helping them direct so it's cool seeing that as well as an adaptation for running on land 
still using those feathers and those wings um, to help maneuver, especially as they're trying to catch um, those fast, quick little lizards and stuff like that. Have scientists considered that maybe they run so fast because their feet are hot? <laughs> That's a good chance. I don't know. If you've ever tried to go get groceries from your car while not wearing shoes in the dead of summer in the South, you know that sometimes you got to pick up the pace because that concrete is hot. It's very, very hot. I, I just don't even go outside barefoot. It's just not worth it to me. <laughs> <laughs> there are those like meme videos of like when your mom gets home and wants you to help her bring the groceries in. And so you just grab like whatever shoes are nearby. And people are walking outside and like one rain boot and one like high heel. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> I'm just saying like it's hot out there. You got to go fast so you don't burn your little toes. Mm -hmm. Question for you. What do you think they sound like? Oh, no, I didn't think that they made a sound. But oh, well, me, me, right? Right. They say beep, beep. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, that's what they say in the cartoons. All my research says that they do not say meep, meep, except... <sighs> I was on the Cornell Lab All About Birds website, it's a great website, and they actually have a picture posted on there that says, when threatened by predators, they run away saying, meep, meep. That, <laughs> mm, uh, <laughs> I'm going to need to see the edit log on this page because someone was having fun. <laughs> I th I, they had to have had, right? Um, no, shockingly enough, they sound like cooing doves. <gasps> And that's my favorite bird sound. That's their primary vocalization is a cooing oh. bird sound. Other sounds they make are kind of a clicking or chattering with their beak. So they kind of sound like Perry the platypus. <laughs> um, but other than that, it's just all coos. So they sound like a dove. Oh my gosh. Just when they thought they couldn't get any more precious. That's got to be the best bird sound that there is. It's like, a good sound. It's so peaceful. It's it just makes sound. you feel good when you hear it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I did want to ask uh, your takes on, you know, the Roadrunner depicted in Looney Tunes is the only one I can really think of. I can't think of any other yeah. Roadrunner in you know, media. So I'm holding my son's uh, stuffed Roadrunner toy and Honestly, I mean, the characteristics aren't too far off. The colors are way off. The beak is off. But, like, long legs, long body. It's pretty good. It's and there. Like Frill on top. I guess he always has the frill versus normally the Roadrunner frill is down. Um, oh, the feet are wrong. That was, uh, I remember <gasps> that now. The feet are wrong. He only crime. has two forward, one back. Animation um, crime. Yeah. But other than that, it's not too bad. It's better than Arthur. I was about to say it's not an <laughs> Arthur. <laughs> That's, that's a bad one. But at least for people that don't live in the Southwest, that cartoon is the only way I'd ever heard of a Roadrunner. Like, mm -hmm. I maybe never would have heard of them if it weren't mm -hmm. for the cartoon. So I guess they put in the work, like, PR-wise. And the backgrounds that you see in that cartoon, that's all very relatable to their natural environments. Again, canyons, dry areas, um, some scrubs, some cactus, um, stuff like that. So they're environment's pretty pretty decent logically consistent yeah i did want to touch just a little bit on some of the challenges of roadrunners so roadrunners aren't a threatened species um they they have a, a pretty good sustainable population so that's good but definitely a lot of man-made issues like habitat fragmentation roadways 
running into cars and stuff like that. Another big issue with a lot of species that eat rodents, especially in residential areas, are going to be rat poisons and things like that that get into their prey um, and then can end up harming the bird. One thing that I thought was really interesting about this particular species is that with climate change, their range is actually expanding, um, which is kind of an interesting thing to see. I wouldn't want to call it a positive um, response to climate change, but climate change for this particular species isn't seen to predict too much of a hazard for them. But that's one species, right? right. Um, one species versus a whole lot of other species. But as temperature rising, their habitat is expanding more northward and eastward. And you see this like it being from Florida, this was happening with reptiles, right? Where reptiles were able to expand into different, which was an especially a problem with invasive reptiles. Right. So you get things like the Burmese python, which is kind of kept sequestered into mm -hmm. the sort of, sort of southern half of the peninsula. But as temperatures get warmer, it can reach farther north. And eventually, you know, if that continues, they could make it out of the peninsula and then you have a bigger python problem on your hands. Yeah. But like, yes, that might be maybe good for the roadrunners populations, but also not good overall. <laughs> right. Because that could mean introducing a new predator into an area that's not prepared to handle it, especially mm -hmm. a predator that's like as opportunistic and good at what they do <laughs> as right. the roadrunner. Right. Yeah. Like if roadrunner populations get established in areas that aren't used to having roadrunner populations, you could see like a sort of ecosystem collapse. Absolutely. They could move in and like eat up way more than they're supposed to. And then, you know, things get all out of whack. So absolutely. Just because it's good for the roadrunner. <laughs> I know. Exactly. I mean, it's good for everybody. <laughs> and I know that's, and that's definitely a kind of an interesting thing. Like uh, that is one exception. Their range can expand, but yeah, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Like, not yeah, great. Because <laughs> the whole ecosystem has had to adapt around the Roadrunner, right? So, like, where they live, yeah, everyone's kind of in balance with each other, but... That's one, just one of those ways that, like, you never 100% know what the long-term impacts of climate change are, are going to be. And, like, it's yeah. always a fun and exciting new problem. Absolutely. Every day. It's a new thing to worry about <laughs> here on planet Earth. <laughs> yep. For people who do enjoy learning about the world around us, enjoy learning about wildlife, things like that, that maybe are looking for somewhere to go after this, I would love to know if there's any projects you're involved with or places you'd like to direct people to go once they're done listening to this episode. Yeah, absolutely. For anyone, I definitely encourage you to look out for your local science center, get a membership, support that organization um, and what they're doing, and really getting children excited about STEM. Now, you don't have to go into a STEM career, but a lot of people might think that, oh, that's not for me. It's scary. It's intimidating. I'll never be able to understand it. I never thought I'd be able to learn about stars and planets, and now it's one of my absolute <laughs> favorite things to, to learn about and, and study and research. So I definitely encourage you to find your local science centers and museums. If there is a local wildlife rehabilitation center near you, please look out for them. They are always needing donations and support and volunteers. Um, so that is always a great thing, whether you can uh, help financially or even just with a little bit of your time. A lot of times they have, uh, at least I know our um, facility here in, in Lubbock has ambassadors. So they do a lot of traveling as well, just like at the science center I work at. We 
take animals and take them to local schools, community centers, and things like that. So that's even another thing for you to reach out for and look for outreach opportunities. If you you can't take a group of students to the museum, maybe the museum can actually come to your school. And so that's always a fun experience. I remember that as a kid, the science spectrum coming to my school and my summer camps and things like that. And so again, I was able to see snakes and lizards, not only at the museum, but where I was as well. They were able to come to me. Um, So yeah, that's what I definitely recommend people looking into and supporting. Amazing. And I I think that, you know, anybody listening to this podcast is probably going to be somebody who's probably pretty on board already with learning about the critters and stuff. But you can expand that into like the people in your family, or the people around you, right? Like, this is one thing I saw something earlier today that was like parents asking for like low clutter holiday and birthday gifts that don't yes. contribute to just like more mess in the home. I've done this before where, you know, I have gifted people museum tickets. So like, that's all ways that you can like help spread the love that you probably already have if you're listening to this. But you know, let other people enjoy that and, and get other people excited about it too. Too. There's always there's room for everybody on the science bus. Absolutely. And um, that's one thing I love to talk to children about is, is everyone's a scientist, whether you realize it or not. So when I'm meeting a group of children and even grownups, like, do you like to cook? Well, cool. If you bake anything, you are absolutely a scientist. That's a science. Even if you're an artist, mixing colors, there's so much science involved in that. Shooting a basketball. I love it when I can get kids on board with like, you play sports, right? You're a physicist. Yeah, I, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> You're a physicist, absolutely, 100%, because it takes a lot of work to get that ball into a hoop. Yeah, but also to understand, you know, what the other people around you are doing and make mm-hmm. predictions about what they're going to do next and what you should do about it. Like, exactly. There's science in everything. Science touches mm-hmm. everything. And I think that's a good way to get people excited about it. Including your digestive system. (laughs) Including and not saying anus about it. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, we didn't say anus at all this whole episode other than talking about not saying anus. I didn't even say cloaca. A missed opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) It's always a good time to talk about cloacas. (laughs) Always. Alana, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a delight. I really had fun learning about Roadrunners with you. I hope that anybody listening shares in the enthusiasm for Roadrunners and science. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you later. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Bye. Bye. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope that the Roadrunner has left little X-shaped footprints all over your heart. If you liked what you heard today, I hope you leave behind some kind words for us in a review on your podcast app of choice. We read them all the time and they make us incredibly happy. Each one means the world to us. If you want to hang out with us online, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Discord, TikTok. Links to everything will be in the episode description. You can send me an email at ellen at justthezooofus.com if you have a cool animal you'd like to hear about on the show. We'd like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on their network, alongside the other wonderful shows like the ones that you heard promos for here earlier in this episode. You can check those out and learn more about the network and how you can be a part of supporting our show over at MaximumFun.org. Finally, we would like to thank Louis Zong for our theme music. That's all for today. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye.
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.